Okay, there are two readings here. The first is from Romans 6, verses 1 to 4. Well then, should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? Of course not. Since we have died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? Or have you forgotten that when we were joined with Christ Jesus in baptism, we were joined, rejoined him in his death? For we died and were buried with Christ by baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. The second reading is from Matthew 5, verses 43 to 48. You have heard the law that says, Love your neighbours and hate your enemy. But I say, Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. In that way, you'll be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. For he gives his sunlight to both the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. If you love only those who love you, what reward is there for that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. If you are kind only to your friends, how are you different from anyone else? Even pagans do that. But you are to be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Mm. So ends the reading. May the Lord bless it to us. Amen. Thank you, Anne. Well, we've made it to the beginning of chapter 6 in Romans. That's great, isn't it? Uh, we feel like we're making progress. We've been digging deeper and deeper into what our faith in Jesus Christ really means. Over the last few weeks, we've been looking at the original sin in the Garden of Eden. Uh, we've looked at how uh, law increases the trespasses. And now today we look at to the scriptures where Paul argues against the case that because sin increases God's grace to us, it's all right to keep on sinning. Now, I would not expect any Christian to presume that keeping on sinning was a good thing. Uh, to me, it's more like the sort of argument that society would use against Christians, both in Paul's time and in ours. In Paul's time, there'd be uh, Jewish religious leaders who'd be looking and saying, look at those Christians, and they're living as if uh, they don't have to obey the law, that they can murder anyone at all uh, without having to be sorry for it. Uh, and today, I think we also have society look at uh, Christians, at churches, because they don't understand the message of the gospel and accusing us. Um, they might say, look at that group of Christians at St. Andrew's Church. They're a law unto themselves. Uh, that, that might be, and that's how I, I can see outside people maybe looking at Christians and those who believe. Um, so we should be ready to give a clear answer about our salvation, about our beliefs and about the gospel. And we need to be prepared to do that. But for those who know salvation, this verse, uh, the very first verse in Romans This verse uh, um, points out how, that how we respond to sin in our lives demonstrates our relationship with God, our Creator, and how authentic that relationship is. And sin doesn't just demonstrate our relationship with God, it will demonstrate our relationship with one another, and as a church, the body of Christ. It won't just affect an individual or two, it will affect each of us connected through our Lord Jesus. Let me say that one more time. How we respond to sin in our lives 
demonstrates the authenticity of our relationship with God, our Creator, and to, the one, and to one another as a body of Christ. Keep that in mind as we go through the passage today. Paul answers this first uh, suggestion in verse 1 by pointing out three truths in verses 2, 3, and 4 of why we should um, not keep on sinning blatantly. Uh, and he says this in verse 2. He says, we've died to sin. We're no longer a slave to sin, therefore we will not keep on sinning. In verse 3, he points out that we are now joined in Christ in all aspects, through baptism, through making a declaration that Jesus is our Lord, and therefore then through Christ's death and through his resurrected life. And then Paul also points out that we don't keep on sinning because in verse 4, now we also may live new lives. So he answers that um, quite swiftly with this suggestion in verse 1. Dr. Bonhoeffer, uh, a martyr for Christ, suggests that anyone who keeps on sinning, presuming that it's okay, we are covered in how we behave, treats God's sacrifice of his one and only son as cheap grace. That it didn't cost God a thing, and in following God, it won't cost us a thing. I'd like to um, read the quote of uh, Dr. Bonhoeffer um, to you. And he contrasts it to costly grace. Cheap grace is a preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Then Dietrich continues and, and contrasts us to real grace, a costly grace, costly both for God and for all who really choose to follow him. He says this, Costly grace is a treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will go and sell all that he has. It is the pearl of great price to buy which the merchant will sell all his goods. Is the kingly rule of Christ for those whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. And he continues saying, Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life. And it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin and grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it cost God the life of his son. We were bought at a price. And what has got cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. Costly grace is incarnation. Of God. It's not hard to agree with Bonhoeffer's statement and agree with Paul that in no way should we treat God's grace with such an approach as to make it cheap grace. So I want us to look a little deeper into our lives and look to where there may be what I'll call hidden sins, hidden addictions that come in the form of habits, attitudes, thoughts of, or lack of forgiveness that we do not address. And that is where our challenge lies. Is there an area in our lives that we haven't handed completely over to God, but we are still holding on to our old self? 
this is where we take time to really consider um, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, and Jesus' full explanation of the law, a portion of what we've heard today with Anne reading in our second reading. Jesus explains that he didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. He didn't come to abolish the thou shalt not murder, so we could treat life cheap, murder whoever we want, and still say we are under God's grace. He came to explain the spirit of the law, that our hatred and anger towards someone breaks the same law as if we were to murder them. The letter of the law was impossible to keep. The Israelites tried to. They knew they couldn't do that, and therefore they continued with the daily sacrifices, waiting for the promised one. When Jesus explains the fullness in keeping these laws to Christians, to the crowd uh, who are listening to him, we also realize that we cannot keep these commandments either, and we rely totally on the grace and sacrifice of Jesus. When we ignore Jesus' commands to love our enemies or do not forgive others or pass judgment on someone else, we demonstrate an area of our lives where cheap grace is still found, and hence our sin reveals our relationship to God and to others. Consider um, going back to Genesis, where we've been hearing about the original sin, the temptation given to Adam and Eve, and there was Satan tempting them to disobey God. Today, uh, such a falseness of belief that is, it is okay to continue to sin and to have certain attitudes to others, to lack forgiveness, is similar to that same scene. This time it's like Satan squatting at the foot of the cross and telling you to take another bite, and again and again, while we see the sacrifice that Jesus gave on the cross. Let me share some images and stories from the Bible to illustrate dealing with sin and temptation. Um, these are for you to go away and just ponder through, and, and I hope maybe you have time to flick through. I've been doing a lot in the Gospel of Matthew recently in the parables, so you might find some things in there. The parables are especially good for us to look at for this topic. Uh, so I'm sharing these starting points for you to explore in your own time, in your own quiet time or study time. Things like about sin that is a habit. Uh, and we heard the phrase, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. I want to talk a little bit more about that uh, later in the message. Uh, what does that mean for us today? There's sin that is an attitude. If you uh, know the parable of the three servants, the master gives them some wealth, uh, one five bags of gold, one three, one one bag of gold, and heads away. And we see that their attitude towards the master is shown in what they do next. Uh, we realise that our relationship with God can be seen like the attitudes of the servants given the bags of gold or the masters away. We can take what God gives us and use it for growing his kingdom, or we can continue to let the forces of sin reign over our lives, restrict us from doing what we should, like the servant with the one gold who hid the gold uh, and waited for his master to come back, and then, like that servant did, point the finger at God and say it was his fault. And there's sin that we need to deal with, which is a lack of forgiveness to others. And again, another parable there would be the uh, parable of the unforgiving servant has a huge debt to the king, and yet the king shows mercy and forgives him. And then that servant goes away and throttles and accuses another one who owes him a little bit. These are the things that we need to look at as we read through the parables and consider how do we apply it to our lives. And then there's also images of dealing with temptation and sin. Uh, and we have Joseph in Genesis 
who flees from Potiphar's wife to keep away from temptations. That's a, a great example of what we do if we are ever in a situation. Run for your life. Zacchaeus, another good example, because here we find someone who was stealing and wheeling and dealing in his job with tax collecting, and yet Jesus comes, and he doesn't just continue, thinking, oh, well, I know Jesus now, but I'll continue my usual life. He cancels, it's like he cancels out of sins. He says, anywhere he's stolen money from others, uh, he'll give it back fourfold. He's going to take half of his possessions and give it to the poor, the ones who he should have been looked after. Here we see a change where he's not allowing sin to creep in. Sin interferes with our relationship with God and with one another. And the last parable I want to get you to think about is the parable of the prodigal son. The prodigal son takes grace for granted, but finally comes back and repents. The older son allows his attitude to linger, not just to the brother, but also to his father. Is there an area in your life, in our lives, that you have not given over completely to God? It may be a, a hidden addiction. A hidden addictions are things that we don't even recognize as addictions. It may be an addictive response when we come under stress, anxiety, tiredness, or criticism. If you identify a hidden addiction that you're dealing with and you can't overcome it on your own, get someone else you trust and pray over that aspect in your life. It may be that there's an attitude that you have towards someone uh, which is hindering your growth as a Christian. And if it is within the church, then it's hindering the growth of this church. If your attitude is anything less than the attitude that Jesus has towards someone else, then we haven't given our relationships over to God completely. If you know this is the case, then again, look at making amends in that relationship. Don't let the sun go down until it's dealt with. Uh, and it might be that you find that actually it was something you were dealing with rather than anyone else, and it wasn't an issue. But it's something, if it's in your heart, you want to deal with immediately. John Owen, who is a, uh, a theologian way back in the 1600s, gave nine instructions for killing sin. Uh, and it's interesting to find that what he suggests at that time is um, just as useful today. And in fact, what he suggests there is very similar to what um, God uh, told Cain when Cain's offering wasn't acceptable, uh, how to tackle sin, how to uh, make sure that if sin's crouching at the door, don't let it have a part of you. So I want to just go through uh, these nine uh, instructions for killing sin and seeing how maybe you can apply that to any situation that you may have too. First of all, John Owen um, talks about diagnosing sin severity. How long have you let that sin linger? How long have you been struggling with it? Uh, because if it's been there for a while, and it's been a struggle for a while, it might be more difficult to kill. Uh, that can also be more difficult to kill if you have made excuses, justify sinful behaviour, or too quickly apply grace and mercy to a sin. Um, that can create severity to it too. So diagnose the issue. Point two, grasp sin's consequences. Sin remains dangerous. No matter whether you're a new Christian or been a Christian for most of your life, sin remains dangerous. 
A Christian's sin grieves the Holy Spirit. It wounds the Lord Jesus and can cause a Christian to lose his or her usefulness for ministry. Have a think about that final part. Causes a Christian to lose his or her usefulness for ministry. God has a plan for you. Satan will do anything he possibly can, every deceptive means to try and stop you from accomplishing that plan that God has for you. Don't let him have a foothold. Third, be convinced of your guilt. Uh, While I don't want anyone to sink into depression seeing uh, themselves as a hopeless cause and that they're overcome uh, by guilt uh, when we fall into temptation, we do need to recognise that guilt. Uh, When addressing sin, we should ask ourselves, why have I gone on sinning when I've been shown such grace and mercy? How can I show such contempt? Uh, Too often, we leave it to a phrase like, hmm, I guess I could have done better. Let's look at... um, the whole aspect of being convinced of our guilt and bringing it earnestly. And with that earnestness, we have the earnestly desire deliverance. This is important because longing, breathing and panting after deliverance is a grace in itself that has a mighty power to conform the soul into the likeness of the thing longed after. As we long um, to be free of sin, then we long to have a closer relationship with Jesus. In their reading, Matthew 5.48, which Anne read, uh, it finishes with this. But you are to be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Let's desire that. Number five. Consider the relationship between your sins and your natural temperament. So each of us are built in a different way. We've got different characters. And sometimes our characteristics or personalities make some sins harder to kill than others. We're not less guilty for committing the sins to which we're prone, but when we know ourselves, we know the areas of our lives where greater self-discipline is necessary. We will know in our characters if we are easily angered about certain things, or if we say a little too much when it should have been better to not speak at all, when we allow a judgmental character to look down upon others or how we respond in the wrong way when we get tired or anxious. Don't be like the third servant in that parable who blamed his master for his behaviour. Number six on John Owen's list, avoid occasions that incite sin. So guard yourself from them. Uh, Owen says, know that he that dares to dally with occasions of sin will dare to sin. And we need to, uh, if we want to stop sinning, we must avoid the slippery places that occasion our falls. Sin that is a habit, uh, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. One area we often are reminded about this is social media. Uh, Social media and things online can be very, very useful. They can be used to build God's kingdom, but they can also be used uh, to tempt us or to destroy people. Again, it's as if here's something, a resource we can use well, and yet Satan is ready to try and manipulate it and change it around. Uh, so while I, I enjoy uh, using YouTube to listen to messages, sermons, um, going online, if I've been away this week, uh, listening to good Christian music, all those things are wonderful. But I see that program sometimes um, infiltrates into the, the system. You look at what it suggests to you to watch. Um, 
And same with Facebook and social media. There seems the ads, I, I'm so annoyed about ads all the time, whether the, about one thing or another, um, they get in my way. But uh, those are the things that we need to be wary of. And if something comes up, we click out of it, or we click the three buttons and um, show that it's inappropriate. Look around and see where there are situations in everyday life which we need to be wary of and guard ourselves from. Number seven, address sin's first signs. We'll be most effective in putting sin to death when we rise mightily against the first actings of our sinful desires, is what Owen says. Don't give sin a foothold. Remember, it is deceptive and likes to creep in unnoticed, or at least seemingly harmless. Check to see if your conscience tells you that you wouldn't want to be caught at in that moment. Or is there a feeling, does it allow a feeling in you that would not be associated to Christ? Number eight, meditate on God's glory. It's hard for sin to flourish in a heart which is focused on praising God. Uh, so fill your minds with verses, fill your um, hearts with songs of praise to God. And I also think that if it's something in your mind, then you need to say it out loud. The actual speaking prayers out loud or singing songs or verses out loud is something which then squashes uh, immoral in, in thoughts or issues in your mind which keep on niggling away at you. When we see God's glory, we'll see our sin's ugliness in contrast. Owen's final uh, instruction comes in the form of a caution. Don't rush to comfort yourself. Though we may experience guilt and conviction over sin, we shouldn't assume that sin is defeated. Sin is deceitful. And it can trick us into thinking we've dealt with it and then creep back in. So Owen warns us not to speak peace to ourselves before God speaks it. Let me conclude with uh, one other little uh, passage, uh, Paul's letter to Titus. And um, remembering the main issue I've mentioned, how we respond to sin in our lives demonstrates the authenticity of our relationship with God, our Creator, and to one another as a body of Christ. So Titus 2, chapter 2, verses 11 to 14 say this, for the grace of God has been revealed, bringing salvation to all people. We know this is true. Verse 12. And we are instructed to turn from godless living and sinful pleasures. That's why we don't keep on sinning. God instructs us not to. We should live in this evil world with wisdom, righteousness, and devotion to God. These are good tools to keep us from sin. Verse 13. While we look forward with hope to that wonderful day when the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, will be revealed. There will be a day when sin will be no more. In verse 14, he gave his life to free us from every kind of sin, to cleanse us and to make us his very own people, totally committed to doing good deeds. Are you totally committed to serving Jesus today? I'm going to pray now, and, and uh, this leads into communion too. So there's a time of reflection, a time uh, both now as we pray, and also uh, during communion to reflect on your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, I want to thank you 
for your love to us, even when we let you down. And I thank you, Lord, that you guide us through Scripture and a knowledge of you to draw closer, to serve you, that you have a purpose, a call in each one's life. And I pray for protection uh, over each one of us of uh, Satan's schemes, of temptations, of deceptions, of harm. Protect us from them all, Lord. And Lord, as we come and remember you, your great sacrifice, help us not to rush through it. Help us not to treat your grace as cheap. But let us see the cost, the cost it was for you. And therefore, the cost we are willing and prepared to give to you, to follow you, or our days of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.